0: Hi, everyone. Joining us this week, delighted to say we're joined by award winning freelance finance journalist and communications consultant, Charlotte Moore. Charlotte, welcome.
1: Hello. Charlotte, welcome very much. Could you first give us a sense of your role, I suppose, on both sides of how Dan described it and what's led you to win those awards?
2: (laughs) So I'll address the awards (laughs) first of all. As somebody once said to me ages ago about how to win awards, winning awards is about being able to write well. So, As a writer, you should be able (laughs) to win awards. When you're in competition with other journalists, though, it gets tougher. That's my number one tip on how to win awards, know (laughs) how to write. I am a freelance journalist and a communications consultant, as you mentioned. So my background is a little bit unusual in that I went from the city into journalism. So I used to be an investment analyst for about six and a half years and then I decided that I was sick of making so much money and I wanted to make a lot less. <laughs> Not exactly. But I had a kind of life-changing event, which we could talk about later if you want. And I decided that I wanted to do something that I really enjoyed. And I went off and did a postgrad in journalism. I did a lot of traveling. And then I started to look for jobs. And I initially got a job on a trade publication, which I didn't enjoy and we're not going to name the publication and what it was. I felt like every day was like an episode of The Office. And I managed to get myself a job as a very long in the tooth graduate trainee on The Guardian's economics and business desk. And that was really kind of what made it for me. That gave me a proper start as a journalist. And I really learned my craft there. I worked there for two years. And then after that, I did a lot of temping at lots of different national newspapers, but I couldn't find a permanent job, so I decided to freelance and I stuck to what I knew, decided not to compete with all the hundreds of other journalists writing about lipstick for a living, stuck to finance and economics. And I started writing a bit about pensions and I was like, hmm, well, this isn't going to disappear. There's however many billions, depending on who you look at, of assets in this arena. So I think this is a good place for me to stay. And That's basically what I've done for the last 15 years. And as I've got to know the sector better, I've tried to diversify and not just be a journalist, but also help businesses, whether that's asset managers or investment consultancies or other organisations involved in this world to hone their communication messages better.
1: I suppose using those skills that you developed yourself, communicating about financial matters to the public.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Fascinating. So a couple of different sort of journalistic beats there in your history, even though a lot of your recent history is focused on pensions. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, that's fair. Why
0: don't you tell us one thing we should know about you we wouldn't find on your CV? I
2: took up Olympic weightlifting Uh, eight years ago. (laughs) And I'm really bad at it because I'm basically not designed to be a weightlifter. I'm too tall. I'm too wobbly. I'm not really strong enough, but I love it. And I've plod away at it. I work with a personal trainer now, and we lift as heavy as I can, and it's been the best thing I've ever done in terms of fitness. And I've made a lot of friends doing it as well. So
1: fantastic!
2: That's something you would never know about me. And what makes wow. it
1: Olympic? Is it the type of weightlifting? Is that literally a brand of weightlifting? I'm sorry, very ignorant in this area.
2: No, don't worry about it. So it's kind of like the oldest type of sport you can do. It involves taking something very heavy from the ground and putting it over the top of your head and that probably started off as big rocks but today it's been sort of streamlined into an Olympic bar with plates on the end and there's two different ways that you can lift the bar from the ground to overhead both of which sound like something out of carry on weightlifting one is the (laughs) clean jerk and the other is the (laughs) okay
1: and this is the one where you lift it sort of well I assume this is one of the two methods you sort of lift it and then you do that jump You split your legs apart. and
2: Yeah, clean and jerk is like in two stages, you lift it up to about your shoulders and then you push it over your head. And the snatch, somehow some miracle happens and you somehow get it from the floor to above your head. So the snatch is the more technically difficult and just the more challenging, but kind of the thing of beauty when it all comes together, which it very rarely does.
1: And do you practice both methods?
2: Both lifts, yeah. Yeah, you do.
1: Fantastic. So best thing you've ever done for sort of fitness and meeting people, what would you say is your kind of biggest, best moment In the sphere of Olympic weightlifting.
2: (laughs) So very, very early on, I decided to enter a competition. (laughs) (laughs) It was in the gym I was in and I lifted like next to nothing. I still can't lift much more than this, but I was only 21 kilos. My emotions always hover close to the surface. And basically, I came out on the platform and everybody said, come on, Charlotte, come on, Charlotte. And I was like, I had a choice. I was like, I could either lift this or I could not cry, but I can't <laughs> do both. So I went for the option of not crying and didn't lift the weight and then had to try again after I'd finished crying.
1: Oh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then I decided that Olympic weightlifting competition was not for me because why would you compete with something unless you're going to win? <laughs>
1: Wow, quite. I did a lot of swimming when I was younger, but I didn't like competing because I didn't tend to win. <laughs> I like the technique side of it. But, but they I didn't are intense like the as
0: well, weightlifting right. competitions. Super intense. Because like you say, every focus is on you, on the one person. And it's a very short, focused period of time, isn't it? So there's nowhere to hide. I can see why that's tough.
2: It's funny, isn't it? Because I have no problem. Dan's been to my, he's actually been very kindly a panelist at one of my networking events. So I have no problem sitting there in front of a group of 40 people, or even 100 people and talking. In that scenario, I'm not about to cry. But if it's waits, forget it, I'm lost.
0: <laughs> exactly. I was about to pivot by saying, you know, talking of situations where there's nowhere to hide and you're sort of in front of a lot of people, I guess, coming to the question of media, I suppose one question we wanted to explore with you sort of straight straight from the get go really is, the wider question of how media covers investing generally. and wondered if you had any thoughts on what does the media writ large tend to get right about covering investing and what does it tend to get wrong?
2: I think I might start with the wrong bits first. So as somebody who has been in the world of investment, I think there's a lot of stuff that gets wrong basically because investment is such a technical pursuit and it is so complex and a lot of the time it doesn't have any black and white answers. And that doesn't always work well with a straightforward news story. And it can be very difficult, I think, if you haven't been in the industry to kind of understand all the nuance. Though I also, on the flip side, think that there is a lot more that people in the industry could do to help journalists understanding more, which we can maybe touch on later. Things that it does well, it does keep the industry to account. So it calls out scandals and the like. I mean, you think about Neil Woodford, or even all the stuff that happened with GAM. And there are very, very good financial journalists out there that are persistent and uncover things. It keeps the industry honest, as journalism is supposed to do. So I think that's what it does well. And it can shine a light on things that people aren't aware of as well. Interesting little sub corners of investment that you think about auto-enrollment and think about how many millions of people have a DC pension today, and yet Very few people know how it works or what's going on. And that's a deliberate design, which I agree with. But it's always good to kind of shine a light on how things could be done better.
1: Just reflecting on what you've just said, I guess I'm really interested in your view on the role that a financial journalist should take in the system, if you like. So you've mentioned holding fund managers to account and you've mentioned sort of, I guess, uncovering information. Are there any other sort of strands to what a financial journalist should be trying to do within the financial system?
2: Well, I think like any other specialist area, I think a big part of our role is education as well. And it's about acting as a conduit between the industry. And some people get a bit uncomfortable about that because they don't think you should be a conduit. They should think you should always be a critical voice. But I think given the complexity, anybody that can de-jargonize and explain things that are quite complex and simple language is to be celebrated. As I said, there is so much complexity and it affects virtually everybody of working age with a occupational pension putting aside the public sector. This is important stuff that affects millions and millions of people.
0: Is it a little bit kind of held back by the fact that stories about market go up, market go down are just so interesting in the moment, but are kind of not that relevant in the bigger picture? Is so it constantly just drawn between the battle between that and the kind of real stuff that just takes time and effort to get into?
2: I would say that news always has a purpose and I think you should not confuse between you should always have news features and analysis as kind of like three key pillars in any financial journalism. And it is absolutely vital to report when markets go up and down or when something like Russia invades Ukraine and oil prices rocket through the roof. I mean, that is vital information that we all need to know. But we also have to have the space and the time for the analysis so we have to have the kind of immediate analysis, whether that's what does this mean for oil prices long term? And then we have to have the more sort of longer term analysis than that. What does it mean for your pension fund? So I think a proper financial news journalism organisation will always have all three pillars well constructed.
1: Should we pivot slightly and talk about the other aspect of your role in terms of communications? And perhaps let's start with comes to members from asset managers, members or savers, I suppose, to their customers. Do you have any sort of observations, I guess, having sat on both sides of it, but now with your role as a consultant in that area?
2: Oh, I have lots of observations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Should we go with what do they get right and what do they get wrong in the same sort of structure again?
2: Well, I'm not sure about the right. (laughs) Let's start with the wrong again. And this is something Dan talks about a lot on his LinkedIn posts. And we're kind of like, I think we have very similar views on this. I think there's a fundamental issue with the industry in that it is a very B2B industry it's very business to business. It's very used to sort of like communicating with its own bubble. And on the institutional side, the trustees are used to talking to investment consultants and to other asset managers, and they don't really talk directly to the members. And on the retail side, it's about talking to the financial advisors and not really directly to the members. So there isn't really a lot of end consumer contact points. And that makes it very different to say, a tech business or a consumer business where you actually have to think about the person that's, in that case, holding the product in your hand. Obviously, you can't hold a financial product in your hand. And I think that that kind of engenders a lot of sort of jargon and conversations that nobody else really understands. And I've done my kind of video rants on why on earth we insist on calling sustainable investing ESG investing, because I just think that's just about the most unhelpful thing we can call it. So. That's what I think people do badly, and they don't step out of their bubble. I went into a meeting fairly recently, and I went before you do all of that. What we need to do is find two sentences, and then we need to go back down our shiny skyscraper and stop two people in the street and go, "We do what whatever those two sentences are," and we want those two people to go, "Oh yeah, I've perfectly understood," <laughs> and I could see that these people had never it had never even crossed their mind that that's actually how you should explain your purpose as an asset manager of what you're trying to do. That's part of what people do wrong. And then I think on the plus side, what people do right is when they do it well, and there are people out there doing it well, they do take on that mantle of educator and try and explain things or show things that are interesting to sort of engage people and get people more interested. The problem with financial services is that you're operating from a negative position because, number one, you had the global financial crisis. Actually, funnily enough, I came out of a bank station about two weeks ago, and just as I got up onto the surface, there was a man standing with a baguette in his hand going, evil bankers, and then walked off, which was truly <laughs> surreal. But either way, I was like, that's just basically, in real life, people's normal reaction to the financial services. And they don't think about or even know about, well, how could they, about, all the good financial services do for them in terms of building their pension and all of the rest of it and giving them mortgage products and everything else that allows them to do what they do in life. Operating against that, then pensions, you've had so many pension scandals over the years and then of course we've got, when we get into sustainable investing, we've got real problems with greenwashing. So you've got this mountain of distrust to overcome. I don't feel like the industry recognises that anything like the scale of the problem.
1: Can we pause for a minute on greenwashing? You mentioned it just earlier. Perhaps you could explain what you think the problem is with greenwashing, but also how you think it can be combated through communications.
2: So I think a lot of the problem with greenwashing is a really fundamental one. And it goes back to what I touched on at the beginning. I mentioned that investing is a complex, nuanced area with lots of grey and not that much black and white. And sustainable investing is that on steroids. (laughs) I mean, it really is. And it is that because of sort of two key factors. First of all, it's brand new. And second of all, it's evolving rapidly. So it's not like a definition of gravity. You drop the apple, it's going to fall to the floor every time. Sustainable investing, you're not quite sure it's going to go diagonal, go rise up from the floor, that kind of thing. So I think that's problem number one. Problem number two is isn't one thing, it's lots of different things with various different interpretations. So I've talked in the past about how I think it's best viewed the spectrum of capital idea as a bridge between investment and philanthropy. And problem number three, well, there's four problems. Problem number three is you've got an industry that's used to talking to itself and loves jargon and then uses jargon in a, again, non-physics definition way. So we all know what gravity means, but nobody knows what ESG means because what it means to me means something different to Dan and different to you, Mary, and then different to another asset manager. So it's just a nightmare. So the problem is a lack of definition of terms. And then fourth of all, I think you get, and this is something Dan has kind of spoken about as well, is you get competition amongst the market and people want to be seen as the best. And then they kind of start selling themselves as, oh, I'm really green without actually they try and build it from the outside in. And actually, you need to build it from the inside out. It's so fundamental to how you do things, to everything you consider, how you view risk, et cetera, et cetera, that you actually need to start with a kind of blank sheet of paper and what's our philosophy? What are our beliefs? And then we have to integrate that throughout our entire company. So what I'm saying is it's almost like everybody has to become an impact investor in a way. It's kind of otherwise you have so much confusion there's just a lack of definition. So I think those are the four things. That's
0: a fascinating point you make. I think about that a lot recently. And let's maybe just explore a little bit how journalists ought to respond to those problems in your view, because I commonly see, in journalism generally, see two common responses to that, those set of problems. One is a complete scepticism and cynicism of the whole lot and just avoidance of the whole area because I just think it's all greenwash and journalists are obviously by their nature a bit sceptical so I can totally see why that happens or the other approach is just sort of an uncritical acceptance of lots of greenwashing guff basically particularly in certain areas let's say of sort of industry press and neither of those responses to me seems quite the right one but you seem caught between again those two extremes do you recognize that at all and how do you think journalists also respond
2: I absolutely recognise that. And I think actually both responses have the same cause. But I think the fundamental issue is a lack of clarity. That's the cause. That's why you have people who are cynical. When I was working at The Guardian, I would say the best of journalists that I worked with, the real Rottweilers, were the ones that woke up every morning and just thought, I know you're (laughs) lying to me about something. I'm just got to figure out what it is. (laughs) So, I mean, that I would define as the best, most ferocious journalist you can come across. If you're an industry perspective, you should keep that in mind. The problem is lack of definition. As I said, the industry is evolving and it's just kind of spewing out jargon and terminology and blah, but it's not bothering to keep anybody up with it, whether it's the end user or the journalists. So, I mean, I really think that there should be the one company that kind of does the education piece. Well, is legal and general LGM. They have regular sort of like schools to teach you about the basics of equity bonds, blah blah blah, all the rest of it. And what we need is more of the industry to do that about sustainable investing. And actually, it would be a very helpful two way process because it goes back to what I was saying before. You need to sit down and go, look, when we talk about sustainable investing, what we mean is this. This is our definition. So let's take an example. Let's imagine you are a responsible investor. According to Spectrum Capital, responsible investment is when you take that first step out on the bridge that links investment to philanthropy. So the first thing you're worried about is risk, and it's about mitigating risk. So you want to make sure that you're not going to end up with a whole load of stranded assets in your portfolio as you decarbonize. Let's say that's step one, and that's what you do. That's what you should be explaining. But I have never seen anybody ever say, we are a responsible investor, and we define it as this. Or let's take ESG tilted index funds who also have an engagement program, which I can think is a good definition of sustainable. They don't say, OK, we started out with the risk, so we weighted everybody by their ESG characteristics and we chopped off the bottom 25 percent. They just looked terrible. And we want to try and lift all the boats equally. So we're going to engage with all the companies and help to make those that are not that bad, but also better. I mean, there's a great strap line for that, isn't there? Exclude the worst and lift the rest. But does anybody use that?
1: wondered if you could sort of reflect on the media environment at the moment. So what forms of media are sort of most relevant in this environment and what's changing there?
2: Journalism has been a dying industry for as long as I've been in it. And I think everybody knows the kind of the reasons for that fairly well. We've had the internet revolution. We've had a move away from people buying and subscribing and towards people being advertising-led, which, of course, is very volatile. It used to be that the trade magazines were sort of insulated from that, but they haven't been. And I don't know the ins and outs of exactly how the trade mags work because I'm not working there every day, but my sense is that it just gets ever more competitive and you've got lots of people trying to do more and more and more journalism and commercial responsibilities and event organization. So people are more and more time poor. And that degrades the quality of journalism because if you want to do journalism really well, you have to spend a lot of time thinking and talking really, to be honest. I mean, I can do what I do as quickly as I do because I've spent 15 years talking to people and I know the industry inside out and backwards and forwards. That takes a lot of time to get to. So I think it's challenging. And I think that people in asset managers, et cetera, need to be aware of that. And they need to do what they can to help journalists and to help sort of younger journalists get up to speed with the industry, which I don't think you can do that quickly. But anything that would be more of the kind of the Eldrum type explainers, I mean, that in itself is also challenging because then you're kind of like asking for people's time and if you're already time poor. So we need some kind of innovative ways to help journalists get on top of their beat, so to speak. And I don't know whether that's something that's really easy to be digested or something that can be, rather than a meeting, something that could be read electronically or a webinar or something like that. But who wants to go on another webinar? Or maybe it's just going back to old-fashioned, educative drinks or dinners or things like that, because networking is a really important part of this business too.
0: That's some fascinating points there. I mean, so do you see the industry press continuing to remain relevant in some form, albeit, like you say, maybe evolve to include more events and obviously it's more online stuff rather than print stuff now?
2: As I said, it's a bit sort of like Mark Twain saying, isn't it? Claims of my death have been much exaggerated. I may paraphrase that quote, but I think when an industry has been dying for 20 years but isn't quite dead yet, (laughs) I think it will always serve its purpose. What's going to be interesting to me is the trends we see in more mainstream media where I don't know how much you keep on track on this, but the huge development of Substack, it's almost a different way to go. You go on Twitter, you become a specialist expert in something, you gather, you get a following of about I don't know, twenty to 50,000 people, then you can launch a substack and you can charge somebody three to five pounds a month. And then you've got 500 people and voila, you've got a good base income. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if that kind of bleeds into train journalism as well. That's like even further disintermediation. Although at some stage, when you're following 10 different people, who all happen to be of a similar sort of ilk, you might sort of want to reverse engineer a newspaper and think, might be that's really That's it, useful. you end up rebundling you, you, it back up were... again.
0: That's the absolute irony of the yeah, whole situation. Exactly. You want someone to rebundle it up, distill it all, and <laughs> just give you the key points. So You end up actually like reinventing <laughs> the bundle. I
2: do think there are real serious challenges to the media landscape. I mean, from a democratic point of view, and we don't need to get into sort of like, is social media a force of good or evil? And that has bled through to the trade publications about... How viable, how commercially viable are these organizations? Will they remain commercially viable? Do we need them? How many do we need? That kind of thing. And I think that scrutiny is always a good thing.
1: I guess just building on that point about the use of social media, if we accept that we're not going to go into the debate about good versus evil, it does of course mean that there's significantly more people in the media business, if you like. Do you feel that there is more that asset managers should therefore do because there are so many more people commenting on? financial markets in this context.
2: Oh god, yeah. Financial services is a backwater for many things. Stacey Havner mentioned it to you, I know, when she was on your podcast about I don't look for inspirational marketing from other financial <laughs> people. I look at the movie industry and I study the classic narrative and the hero myth. So I think there's a lot to be said about that on social media. I mean it's kind of just there are a few people who do it well and without wanting to sound like a sycophant, I'd say that Dan is one of them, but it is a great medium, especially LinkedIn. I think it's a relatively, I mean, it has problems like every other social media platform, but I think you can really use it to tremendous effect, both corporately and personally. And I think that very few people actually do it as well as they could. Very few organizations do. And when I say organizations, the trick is not to be ABC asset manager with your ABC LinkedIn feed the trick is to find your five to ten really effective spokespeople and your five to ten hot topics maybe tens too many and design a proper social media strategy for that organization and have a whole strategy around who's going to post who's going to write what who's going to do videos how often you're going to do that what you're going to wrap it into that kind of thing and i don't get the feeling that many organizations do that in any kind of organized manner. I completely
0: agree with you. I mean, it will shock no one to hear that I'm a big believer in the potential power of LinkedIn and how much more people could use it. You see a really small number who are doing that. I'm starting to see on Twitter a little bit more. Some big asset managers have got maybe two or three senior people who are really using it and giving really great real-time kind of info and takes, which that's what you want on Twitter. You don't want the corporate channel trying to push out just these kind of blind corporate messages, which is what a lot of people ends up being. People just think we've got a social media marketing team for that. They're just gonna do that kind of thing, which completely ignores the fact that it's like you say it's about individuals.
2: Yeah, I mean FinTwit, as it's affectionately referred to, which is financial Twitter, it's quite a small little world. But Twitter and LinkedIn are very different beasts with very different audiences. I mean, LinkedIn is professional, you can have fairly in depth conversations about stuff. I will post something on LinkedIn and I'll get loads of engagement. I'll post it on Twitter and it'll disappear into the void. But it's important to still post it on Twitter. So I think As a specialist from a technical background in a very niche area, your job on Twitter is to educate and to explain and to tell people what's really going on. And it's very good. Lots of journalists are on Twitter and lots of mainstream journalists on Twitter. So it's a good way to make yourself known and you could be picked up as a specialist spokesperson when your particular subject happens to be the news of the moment so I think both are important and you need to approach both with a different mindset but they're equally important I think for broad profile. That's I
1: suppose the lessons for asset managers do you have any reflections on investors use of social media LinkedIn versus Twitter if you're from the investor perspective?
2: So by invest you mean like the actual asset owner a pension scheme etc. Yeah
1: pension scheme an individual who's investing their own money that sort of thing.
2: Well the individual I guess it's about what they as the individual want to do The asset owner perspective, I think it's really important because Twitter would be a really good way for you to actually speak to your scheme members if you did it well. And again, it's not about you as RPMI or Nest or whatever, having your Nest corporate Twitter handle. It's about finding somebody, your CIO, whatever, explaining what's going on in markets. And I don't see enough of that either, do feel free to call in and tell me if I'm wrong, but how we seen pension schemes explaining what their reaction to the war in Ukraine, for example, is and how they've repositioned or not repositioned their portfolios and why they have or haven't done that? Dan and I have spoken a lot about defence stocks and about how that's kind of a non-story for pension schemes because they probably were invested in the defence sector anyway, so Have we seen any asset owners come on and explain we do actually have a whole lot of defence stocks anyway and this is why we have that position and this is our fundamental philosophy or do they just want to keep their head below the parapet because they're worried if they say anything they're just going to incur all kinds of negative stories? That's a big consideration. And I suppose it is
1: tricky and from that perspective from a sort of I am managing a pension scheme the balance of how you communicate to members I think is currently probably not dynamic enough but I know from sitting in meetings with some of my clients they will often think about whether they should and then often talk themselves out of it.
2: Talk themselves out of it, yeah. For
1: various reasons. Often, we don't know the full true impact, so what do we actually write? We don't want to be scaremongering. We don't want to make people really worried when there might not be too much to be worried about from a pure sort of financial perspective. And then you get into the whole paternalism debate as well in terms of the extent to which the pension scheme trustees should be writing to members about things that don't necessarily impact them financially, but they are viewed as a sort of group of people who maybe there is a responsibility there to give people comfort or to, I don't know, help them with their quality of life, whether that's being driven by the financial position or not, which, of course, it opens a can of worms. But I do feel like the balance there is probably not quite at the right point. And of course, it depends a little bit. And it does vary in terms of approach between like a DB pension scheme and a DC pension scheme, where on average, your DB pension scheme members are going to be probably older generations, particularly very mature pension schemes, the way that they take information in, the way that you communicate with them, how dynamically you communicate with them, and how impacted they'll have been by some of these events is probably quite different to a DC scheme that's quite immature with lots of new members coming in all the time.
2: That picks up on a point of yours, you should always, always, always be aiming to provide comfort. And information. So whatever comms you're doing around it, it's not you should be terrified because oil prices are going through the roof. It should be about, hey, look, all your inflation hedges are doing exactly what they should, that kind of thing. You've got to always provide comfort because we're always only one neuron rubbing to another neuron away from a loss aversion response, if you see what I mean. That's probably not a good way to explain it. But I mean, we're so prone to loss aversion that In any situation that could trigger that response, we want to provide comfort at all times and just say, I know these are scary times, but over the long term, blah, blah, blah. And I think if you had that mindset going into everything, it would be better.
0: It's that context, isn't it? I see the same conversations play out sometimes. People talk themselves out of it because they're like, well, something bad has happened. We want to provide comfort, but we don't want to provide false comfort. And we don't want to panic people by drawing attention to something by suddenly contacting them out the blue and mentioning it potentially quite a while after by the time we actually get the comms out might be quite a while after the event one thing i do see i think i'm a customer of money farm that robo advisor and they normally send out just like a monthly thing that tells you what they've done with the portfolios and generally it's not very much and everything's fine and i think if you get in that cadence of something regular most of the time you can just say Not much happened. It's fine. Markets went up a little bit. End of story. Then every so often you can say, okay, there is something more to say this time. Whereas you were just in a difficult place. If you never communicate, you're suddenly putting a lot of pressure on that one con that's going to come out where you somehow have to explain everything. All the good news that's gone before, all the work you've been doing for years, what's just happened, what it does and doesn't mean, what might happen. And you're just like, oh, God, it's impossible, isn't it?
1: And to change the attitude, I think at the moment, rightly or wrongly, I think quite a lot of pension scheme trustees worry that if I send a communication they will always think that communication is bad news Exactly. and actually changing that attitude is quite important as well, I think.
2: Yeah. And maybe one solution to that is not actually sending a communication per se. Maybe it's not actually a physical email. I don't know how this works regulatory wise, but maybe it's about just posting so that people who are interested can find it. Or as Dan says, it's about regular updates. I think always focusing on the long-term rather than the short-term. So this is how we've tweaked our portfolio, that's far more helpful, I think. If you start with the kind of regular updates on, this is what we've done to our portfolio and this is the reason why we've done it. I don't know, we've added this manager or this asset class for this reason. Then once you've got established that, then it's easier to then come in with a, you may have noticed, blah, and then talk about exactly. that. Exactly.
0: That's back to the point. If you've established some kind of cadence of communication and structure for it, it's much easier to come in with little changes rather than having to do all that work in one comp piece. Anyway, Charlotte, we're getting toward the end of the time. Really interested to hear what are some of the things that you're looking at over the next sort of 12 months then that you might be writing about or thinking about?
2: I love that you think that I have a 12-month plan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) 12 days then.
2: Especially for journalism. Broadly, I'm going to carry on with, I've written a whole series of blogs that you can find on the Insights page of my website, which is, lotsmore.co.uk. Get that plug in there. So I've written about, I think it's about 10 or 12 articles about sustainable investing. And I was trying to address the problem that we've talked about before, as in what is this thing called sustainable investing? So I'll be writing more about that. I'll be monitoring anything that happens on a DC perspective. There's quite a few things that are interesting we've got charge cap consultation i'm also interested to see if anybody at any time tries to do something about contribution levels or if that now becomes completely off the table because we've got a cost of living crisis that kind of stuff and just monitoring what happens with db i'm fairly reactive in that way with the sustainable investing stuff it tends to be the way i work is i'll write something and i'll have an interesting conversation about it and then usually at the end of that article i'll be like I've got some more questions about this. So I tend to kind of like develop things further as I go along. I've written one article about D&I. am writing another article about diversity inclusion. I think that's really interesting. I'm kind of really fascinated at the moment about commodities because they've done so well. And apart from Nest, I don't really know anybody that has any commodities in their portfolio. So I'm kind of interested in that. I'll be interested in how all of this economic turbulence that we're going to go through, how that plays out in terms of not just investment and markets, but kind of like, whether it has second, third order effects. We've now got interest rate rising. Are we just going to like give up on the whole at retirement thing and just all go back to buying annuities now because now they're not going to look so expensive anymore? And if we have rises at the long end of the curve our pension scheme liability is going to fall even faster and what does that mean? So all of those kind of like second, third order effects, that'll be fun to watch.
1: So only a couple of things then. <laughs>
2: you have asked me. I'm a jealous and an entrepreneur, so if you get only 10 ideas in a minute, you're doing quite well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like you'll be keeping very busy. Yeah, always. Charlotte, as we start wrapping up today's episode, what's the one thing that you would like listeners to take away from today?
2: The one thing I would like listeners to take away is that when you write pretend you're a journalist. When I say pretend you're a journalist, there are certain things that journalists always do. So number one is the so what factor. Why am I bothering to write this? What's interesting? If your marketing department says you should write it, 54,000 other people have already written it, you need to turn around your marketing department and go, no, I'm not going to do that. Find me a new angle. You need to be giving some really generally interesting insight Perspective. Remember, kind of, the man bites dog theory of writing. So, if a dog bites a man, that's boring, but if a man bites a dog, that's interesting. (laughs) That's point number one. So, so what? Why am I doing it? Always writing with your target audience in mind. And I think that's something that organizations forget all the time. They've got internal stakeholders that make them do things that don't actually make that much external sense. So, always remember why am I doing this? Who am I speaking to? And what's their problem that I'm trying to fix? You can do let me tell you something interesting, but it's got to be let me tell you something interesting that's going to fix this problem. It's always got to be solutions driven. When you write, have a clear structure in mind. Very simple. This is the problem. This is the solution. This is a classic structure. Here's something interesting. Here's why it's more convoluted. And People think this, but actually that, that kind of thing. Have a clear structure in mind and be really hypercritical with yourself when you write. Do I need that word? Do I not need that word? Try to avoid adjectives, because you should be able to use a noun or a verb rather than an adjective. Those kind of things. Sorry, you've really got on me on to my hot topic. One final thing, if I may. Absolutely. Kind of try and do all of your comms like a news story. And I don't know if you guys have heard of something called the news pyramid. No. No? So this goes back to before the days of software and computer when We used to print our newspapers and it's the hot metal era. So as you would have the page laid out and it would be a wooden frame and you'd insert all the individual letters and then you run the ink over it and you print the page. But news evolves during the day. So you had to have a way of being able to change things and take bits out and put other bits in in a very fast way. So news stories were designed as a pyramid. And the idea is that with a pyramid, you can cut from the bottom and the pyramid will still stand right. It's not going to fall over. And so you could cut all the way up until you've got the final, just an intro, which is a news and brief, which is the story in a sentence or two that would be the intro to your news story or the lead, as they say in America. And so always try to like write in that way that you've got your, what you're doing kind of at the top.
0: What do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: Two things, if I may, complexity and psychology. I know that we all know about behavioral economics, but I think we're only just on the cusp of our understanding of how human brains work. And that kind of links me into I know you want me to recommend a book. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of link into that. I've front run the sequence there. I'm sorry. So, two things. Just remember it's really super complicated and it's often counterintuitive to people. If you've been immersed in the world of investing for as long as we all have, it's all natural and normal. And your recommendation? How emotions are made. The Secret Life of the Brain. And it's by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Somebody recommended it to me I went to an afternoon event. It's honestly fascinating. And I haven't finished it yet. So I'm going to say as far as I've got to, basically, the brain is a huge predictive machine. Everything you do, it predicts. It never just takes in information and analyzes it. Because if it did that, you'd do nothing. You'd just be a hot mess of overwhelmed information. So Given that knowledge and what we were talking about behaviorally, it just goes to show why the idea of the rational human being is such a myth because our brains (laughs) aren't even designed that way. We're making constant predictions all the time. One more book, Key Person of Influence by Daniel Priestley. If you're looking to raise your profile, that is a very helpful book written by a guy who's an entrepreneur and helps entrepreneurs, but it teaches you how to do all the things you really need to do to raise your profile. And the third one, I would say, to help you write to pithily, Rosyad Kapuchinski, and I have probably mispronounced that, and I apologize to the entire Polish people, but he was a Polish journalist, and he was around from 1932 to 2007, and he was like the sole foreign correspondent For Poland. And the myth goes that he was always on a tight budget. And that was back in the days when you had to pay per word for telegramming things backwards and forwards. So he knows how to write in a very sparse style. So those are my three Uh recommendations. Super.
0: Great stuff. We'll check them out. We'll get the links into the show notes. Charlotte, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time.
2: You are most welcome. Great to talk to you both, too. I've loved it.
1: Excellent. We've loved it too. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another episode. Take care.